You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. So now I'm going to invite you all to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Today's scripture reading is going to be verses 3 to 12 from chapter 7 and verses 1 to 9 from chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistine heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistine went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Philist- as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they went Then they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel demands a king. Verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were the judges in Bathsheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside for gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them out from Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks. Thank you, Daryl. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Let's let's have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 7. Getting my timer started here. So I want to begin by asking us today, what spiritual warfare looks like to you? What do you think spiritual warfare looks like? 
in the last year, I can think of two conversations I've had. One with someone who was really struggling with a sense of forgiveness because they'd been treated in a very uh, hurtful way. They'd been sinned against in a very, very grievous, grievous way. And those people that had sinned against them had not apologized, had only doubled down in their efforts, and they were feeling a real sense of grief and injustice, which was correct. But there was a tendency, uh, a desire for vengeance, uh, a desire to vindicate their own name, uh, certainly no desire to forgive at all. There was a hardness and a, a real anger against those people that had sinned against them. Or an, another example I think of where someone was really struggling in a relationship and not sure whether they could go on and thinking of just calling it off and yet knowing what God would say to them and yet feeling such a sense of a wrestle inside of their hearts because of some of the pain and the difficulty that they had already experienced as well as what they projected as being possible pain in the future. Friends, these two simple examples I've given are examples of spiritual warfare. These are examples of the wrestle in our hearts regarding following Jesus or not. Now, I want to ask if you can take just 15 seconds and think for yourself this morning about a wrestle or a temptation that you are facing now, something that you have to wrestle with Jesus about, something that you're tempted to do or put your faith or your trust in. It could be maybe putting all your confidence in your wealth. It could be maybe devoting yourself to your career, to the neglect of your family or your health. It could be looking for comfort and illicit sexual experiences. Why don't you take a, a little moment to think about that? The famous Christian hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that we'll sing later on today, says this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. What does it mean for God to seal our hearts? Friends, as we look at our passage today, we are reminded that the New Testament tells us that all of the Old Testament is written to us for our example. And therefore, there is much that we can learn from 1 Samuel today. In our passage today, we have two chapters, 7 and 8. They are side by side, and we're going to see two different accounts. The first chapter is an account of God's people returning to follow the Lord. The second chapter is an account of them turning their hearts away from the Lord again. So we're going to look at these two ideas and then see how whilst this is an, ex this is an example for us, there is a better hope for you and I as the new covenant people of God here today. So we're going to look at what it looks like to turn to the Lord, what it looks like to turn away from, and why and how you and I can live different lives today. This does not have to be our story in the same way. So let's dive in. In verse 3, we see that Samuel uh, is preaching to the house of Israel. It seems as though Samuel has been preaching for about 20 years, and he's just been faithfully doing his work as a prophet sharing the word of God uh, with all of Israel whose hearts were turned away from God. And suddenly it seems as though God's uh, people's hearts begin to turn toward him. 
you may have experienced this before. Maybe your heart has been hardened toward God, and suddenly you feel a, a sense of conviction about certain things that you've done or are doing, and you realize God is at work in you to try and draw your heart nearer to Him. And Samuel does not waste this opportunity, but he presses it in and uh, begins to address them. Look at what he says in verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you return into the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So Samuel here is directing God's people as to what repentance really looks like. And I want us to see here that what we can see is that turning, for, uh, turning toward God involves putting away foreign gods, idols. It involves giving your whole heart toward God and then practically serving him with our hands. And Samuel here, friends, is describing a comprehensive uh, repentance, turning with your whole heart toward God, what you trust in, uh, what your hands do, what you practically do, from idols toward God. So I want you to see it, two dimensions. It's every part of you, your heart, your mind, and your hands. So every part of you, and it's turning from idols toward God. This means, friends, repentance is not simply just turning away from sin, but it's more practically turning toward God and giving God your entire um, heart. Sometimes we think that holiness just means the absence of sin, but actually holiness is a full-hearted devotion to God himself. I'll use a very uh, silly example. Imagine you had a two- or three-year-old son, and you were a little bit tired of you know, looking after your son and all the affection that he was giving you, so you decided to get a dog, all right? So you, you, you get a dog at home, and now all your time and all your attention goes toward the dog. And you maybe, you know, your son just spends all his days in the room. He's kind of locked there. There's no attention, no communication. You put a little bit of food in once a day, but all your time and attention goes to the dog all the time. I'm sure you would agree that would be very sinful, right? Now, what would repentance look like in this case? Sometimes Christians think, think that repentance means that you get rid of the dog. You get rid of that which is diverting your attention and you send it away. That would be a pretty good start. But repentance is not simply just getting rid of the dog. Repentance is bringing your son out and loving your son and treating your son the way that you should. Sometimes as Christians, we think that repentance is simply just no longer doing the wrong things that we should do without recognizing that what true holiness is, is giving our heart, our whole heart to God. Finding those things that have taken his place in our lives and then turning from those, but loving God positively and giving our whole heart to him. And St. Augustine, years ago, saw the heart of this and saw that at the heart of sanctification is about prizing and loving and cherishing God above everything else. And Augustine was trying to figure out how do we make sense of the fact that in the Christian life, there are many good things that we can enjoy and like, family, workplace. I know there are many here who really enjoy their jobs, and it's certainly that's not a bad idea. Uh, the Bible tells us God gives us our work and our vocations. Those are things that we can enjoy. But how do we prevent those becoming an idol in our hearts? And the answer, friends, that Augustine said is that sometimes with good things that we are inclined to worship, the answer is not trying to love them less, but making sure that we love God more, that we love God above all of those things. And when we love God above all of these other good things, it shapes how we love them. If there's a person in this world that you love more than God, 
you may be inclined to treat them wrongly, actually. You may be too afraid of what they say to you. You may have a fear of them because you actually idolize them. They've, they've taken the place of God in your life. But ironically, if you love God more than that person, you will actually be able to love them in a purer and better way, in a way that is ultimately better for them. And this is the same for our workplaces and anything else in our lives. And so Augustine is, is urging us to make sure that we're cultivating in our hearts affection and love for God above every other thing in our hearts. And here we see God's people being urged by Samuel to return to the Lord with our whole hearts and with their whole entire heart. So let me ask you, back to that question I asked earlier, something that you may be wrestling with or struggling with. What does it look like for you today to turn to the Lord? I want you to think both about the level of desires what you long for, what you want that thing to give you, and what you practically do. And what would it look like if you loved God far more than those things? So here we see, we've seen so far, uh, what it looks like to turn to the Lord. But in verse 7, we suddenly see that what seems to be some pretty good repentance from God's people is tested. God's, uh, their repentance is tested. Now, we see this in verse 7 because the Philistines uh, gather together and they uh, are threatening God's people. Now, for us to, to see how Israel responds to this test, we actually need to zoom out of the passage a little bit and remind ourselves of what we saw in chapter 4. Because chapter 4 and chapter 7 uh, are two sides of a unit of the scripture, and we're going to see two parallel accounts. Remember in chapter 4, the Philistines drew near, the Israelites uh, trusted in the ark to try and save them and to be God's like lucky charm that delivered them from their enemies, and they got routed. And now we're going to see a similar pattern emerging again, except that Israel's going to respond rightly. We're going to see that they're going to pass the test. So let's have a look at our, our table. Next slide. Firstly, we see chapter 4, the Philistines drew up, and in chapter 7, the Philistines went up against Israel. Secondly, how did they respond? In chapter 4, the Israelites said, let us bring the ark that it may come among us and save us. They weren't trusting God. They were putting their, their, their trust in some like uh, lucky charm. But now in chapter 7, after they've turned to the Lord, they respond differently. The people say to Samuel, do not cease to pray for us that he, that's God, may save us. Friends, they are now turning their faith to God and trusting in him. And so next we see that as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp in chapter 4, Israel gave a shout so that the earth resounded. And now in chapter 7 we see it says that once they turned to the Lord and prayed to him, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day. Can you see how this is written? There are direct parallels here. And so finally uh, in chapter 4 we saw that the ark is captured and the word that is described as Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. But now God delivers his people, they're rescued, and they say, we're going to erect a monument, a stone monument called Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Um, uh, God has been our helper. So we see these clear parallels. Israel's trusting the Lord. They've offered a sacrifice. God's delivered them by defeating their enemies. Their repentance is tested, and they pass the test. They've trusted God rather than their might or the ark as a charm. And I want us to notice here, friends, that I think if we were to put ourselves in this situation, many of us would say spiritual warfare 
for us as the Israelites was the Philistines coming against them. And there's a certain sense where that's not entirely wrong, but there's another battle that's going on inside the, the Israelites, not just with the Philistines outside of them, but the battle inside their hearts. Will they trust God? Will they give themselves to him? And when the test comes, they do give themselves to him. And what we've seen in this section so far is that Israel has had Samuel as a figure who has actually uh, fulfilled multiple roles for God's people. He was a prophet who spoke God's word to them and said, if you're returning to the Lord, turn with all your heart and show them how to do that. Samuel functions as a kind of priest in the passage who offers up prayers to God's people and a nursing lamb as a sacrifice. He offers up intercession for them for, uh, uh, in battle and a sacrifice for their sins. And Samuel is a kind of judge, a kind of king judge who uh, protects them as they go into battle and through his prayers sees God's people delivered. But interestingly, the kind of ruler and judge that Samuel is, is not leading with his own might. He's not leading God's people to victory with a sword. He leads through prayer. He trusts in God. It seems like weakness. And God amazingly delivers his people through thunder. God's people, friends, needed all three. A prophet, they needed a priest, they needed a king deliverer. As you think about your challenge today, as you think about where your own heart is, what do you need in your life today? Do you need to hear God's word? Maybe to break up a hardened heart? Do you maybe need a, a, a priest? Someone who can tell you that your, your sins that you've committed have truly been forgiven? Do you need deliverance from things that are enslaving you? Friends, the Bible tells us that we who sit here in Singapore in 2023, we have a far better Samuel. We have Jesus, who is the true prophet, priest, and king. A prophet who comes to speak to every one of us today with words that sometimes are strong and challenging, but are not meant to destroy us. Words that sometimes wound, sometimes hurt, sometimes lead us to cut away parts of our lives that are not pleasing to God and is painful, but because he is like a master surgeon wanting to liberate us and do surgery on us to heal us. Friends, can we open our hearts to Jesus, the prophet who comes to speak God's gracious word of life to us? His word is not vindictive, but life-giving even to those that he warns. Friends, Jesus is a better priest. It doesn't matter what you've done or how much you've sinned. If you turn your heart toward God today, you can know the full forgiveness of God. You can know his delight in you as a father. You can know that your sins have been washed away. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west. And this is because Jesus as a priest comes, as the book of Hebrews says, not simply to offer up the blood of bulls and goats, but to offer up his own blood. What a sacrifice. Jesus has died, friends, for the sins of, the, of this world. And if we turn from them and put our faith in him, we get ourselves credited to us his righteousness, as Daryl led us earlier in our confession. Friends, you can know that today by faith by trusting in Jesus in this way. And Jesus is our king, the one who defeated our greatest enemies, 
not just those enemies of our circumstances outside of our lives, but the enemies of sin inside of our hearts, nailing it to the cross has defeated it, friends, in an upside-down way. And this is how this passage is urging us with, with our whole hearts to turn to this God, to see Him and to love Him. Not just to think, what are the areas of my life that I'm not doing rightly in and try and stop doing those, but to positively give our hearts to this King, this Jesus, who loves us and has given Himself for us. And God's people, in verse 12, once they see this amazing victory that's won, they want to remind themselves of this. And Samuel took a stone, it says in verse 12, he set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And Ebenezer means stone of help. And uh, that's the word that comes up in, in that hymn, come thou fount of every blessing. Uh, some people actually swap out that word because most people have not read 1 Samuel 7, and that's the only place in the Bible that's found, and they don't know what on earth that song is uh, singing about, but we're going to sing it today, and now you're all going to know exactly what that verse of this song means. But they set up a memorial to remind themselves. As they'd seen this pattern again and again of forgetting God's goodness, they wanted to put up a, a stone memorial that said, God helped us. The Philistines drew near, we repented, we trusted in God, we went to Samuel for prayer, it looked like an impossible situation, and God delivered us how? By thunder. Bizarre. Let us remember to trust, to put our confidence in the Lord our God. And friends, you and I need Ebenezer's like this all the time, because we are so prone to forget God's provision in our lives. It, it, it is, it's scary to me how much I've seen God do in my life and how quickly I can forget what God's done and then want to rely uh, upon my own hands to provide what I think I need. I was speaking to someone recently, a friend, about how when I think about the future, I can find myself tempted to think I don't have enough provision for the future, for retirement, and begin to find myself getting anxious about it. And that friend reminded me, but hasn't God provided for you like so crazily in so many ways over the years? And I was like, oh yeah, actually he has. <laughs> and I stop and I think about what Jesus has done and how Jesus has given himself for me. And God promises he will never leave me, he will never forsake me. And suddenly my heart begins to find rest in him again. But friends, I need to be reminded. And we have the greatest reminder of God's victory over sin of, a, of the greatest reminder of God being for us, the greatest reminder that God will never leave us or forsake us, it is the cross. But we need, friends, to be a community that helps and reminds one another of this. In some sense, friends, we ourselves are Ebenezer's to one another, pointing one another back to the cross to remember the goodness of God in our lives and His faithfulness to us again and again. So, friends, this is what it looks like to turn to the Lord. But unfortunately, in chapter 8, we also see an example of what it looks like to turn away from the Lord. In chapter 8, we see that Samuel becomes old, and Samuel, as good as he's been, as prophet, priest, and king, is, no, is not perfect. Samuel's old, he's not going to last forever, and unfortunately, Samuel's kids are a bit of a train wreck. So just like Eli's sons were unfaithful, verse 3 tells us, that his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside off again, and they took bribes and perverted justice. And this is a problem because verse 1 says, Samuel, when he became old, made his sons judges over Israel. So Samuel does something he was not allowed to do. 
there was no provision in the law for there to be a hereditary system of judges. But Samuel's like, I'm ruling, so I'll just put my kids there to rule after me. And this, firstly, is against God's word, actually. But secondly, it's a huge problem because Samuel's sons are not obeying the Lord. And so as a result, the people in verse 4 and 5, they see this, and they're like, we're not going to have your kids being our judges. And so they say, we don't want that. We want a king, rather. We'll get back to this in a moment. But in reaction to something that was legitimately not good, Samuel's plan, they swing the other way, and they say, give us a king like all the nations. And this, friends, is grievous to God. They are saying to God, we do not see you as our king. You are not enough for us as our king. We want something else more tangible to be happy and secure. Now, some of us may be thinking, what exactly should God's people have done in a situation like this? I mean, Samuel's boys are uh, no good. And the answer of what God's people should have done is they should have done exactly what they did in chapter 7 when they were in trouble. They should have cried out to the Lord. And Hannah's prayer has shown this again and again. God is able to raise up rulers and deliverers from the dust heap. God rises up from nothing. And so rather than trust God to raise up a ruler, they rather want to put in place their own system. Give us a king like all the other nations and let him lead us out into battle. In a sense, friends, the Ebenezer of chapter 7 was already forgotten. And this request for a king is very grievous to God. Have a look in chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. God sees, friends, this request as a king as what? A rejection of him as their king. Now, we should understand why this is... um, the case. God's people belonged to him. They were his covenant people. And God established himself as their ruler. And this was entirely different to all the other nations. All the other nations had rulers or kings. God's people didn't. They were a bunch of tribes. And yet God had made them a people by leading them out of Egypt. He led them. He gave them his word. And they were to trust him and know that he was ruling over them. When they were in battle, God delivered them by thunder and various other crazy things. God had led them all the way out of Egypt this way with no kind of strong man, but God had been their ruler. And God seems to refer to this grief in verse 8. He says, you know, they've rejected me from being their king according to all the deeds I've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt. God's saying, don't you remember all the things that I've done for you? And they have turned away from him. Now, friends, God... Some people say this is a little bit complicated because there seem to be some passages earlier on before 1 Samuel that refer to the fact that God knew that one day his people would have a king. And it's true that the scriptures did talk about the fact that one day there would be a king that would come. Ultimately, that will be fulfilled in Jesus, someone who is both God and an earthly ruler, the God-man Jesus. But in here, God's people are clearly sinning by asking for a king because They want a king like the nations. And we know this because in Deuteronomy 17, God gives his people instructions for when they finally get a king. And this is what God says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, that's the error, 
You may indeed set a king over you, God says, but it must be one the Lord your God chooses. And then God says, God gives them a whole lot of different criteria. So God says, the kind of king you're going to have is going to be someone I choose because he has to trust me and follow me. It's not just going to be like the other nations. And so he says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. He's not to be some earthly ruler that's like rich and powerful. Next slide. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, thinking he's in charge now and can plunder the land, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess of silver and gold. I mean, some of you are thinking, what kind of a king is this? The king of Israel. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. What is the king's main job in Israel? What is his main job? He's sitting there copying the law. It's like he's at tuition, like just doing exercises, you know, copying the book of the law all the time. Isn't that a strange task for a king? Why is this? The king is to remember he's under God's rule. And God is the one who's truly leading his people. He is simply like a prince or some kind of a a person to direct the hearts of people toward God again and again. And it says, it shall be with him, that book that, that he copies, And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Friends, God's king was to be entirely, entirely different. And Samuel here recognizes that what God's people are looking for is is not that at all. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 19, Samuel goes and warns him and says, you're asking for a certain kind of king. And if you, if you get this kind of king, uh, let, let me just actually, before we get to chapter verse 19 and 20, in chapter 10 to 18, Samuel warns the people. And he says, if you get what you're asking for, a king like the other nations, this is not going to go well for you. And look at what he says. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers. He will take the best of your fields. He will take the tenth of your grain. He will take your male servants. He will take the tenth of your flocks. He says, you want a king like the other nations? This is going to be a disaster for you. And the people respond in verse 19. They refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they say, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Friends, there are at least two things that God's people want. They want to be like the other nations. They want some kind of a power Something, someone to lead them into battle. That is a little bit like what they were tempted to trust in with the ark in chapter 4. They want the power without faith in God. They want a king who will lead them into battle without having to trust God. Just like with the ark, they wanted some mystical power, to, um, some charm to come and help them win their battles without them surrendering their hearts to God. Now, friends, what is going on here? Their hearts have turned from God. They've rejected the deep, unique, covenantal relationship that they've had with God where God would lead them. Now, why do they do this? I want us to think about this for a moment and think how this applies to you and I today. Friends, firstly, I think they want to trust in something tangible and seen. They're probably thinking, you know, Lord, we've been like following you for a long time. Can't we just be like all the other nations? It's like a bit awkward to explain to all of our neighbors, like, who's your king? We don't really have one. God's our king. It's... And Lord, can't you just give us something that we can see and maybe manage and control in a more tangible way? God, all this living by faith, all this trusting that you're there for, the, that you're there for us, that you'll lead us and guide us. 
Just give us a king like the other nations. This living by faith is way too hard. Friends, is this why some of us are inclined to not trust and believe God's word? Is this why we turn in faith from God, someone that we can't see? Because though God does promise to provide for us and care for us, we'd rather put our confidence in numbers in a bank account. It's far more tangible. Maybe rather than the everlasting pleasures that God promises to give us in his presence and the joy and the comfort of knowing him, we turn to sexual experiences or pornography. We're tired of trusting God to satisfy us. We're tired of what we can't see. We forget God's Ebenezer. We forget his acts. Just like they forgot how he led them out of Egypt. Friends, in which area of your life are you not satisfied to trust and believe God and his promises? You need to hold on to something yourself, see it, grasp it. Secondly, they overreact to evil by not turning to God, but turning to themselves. Friends, I want us to note here that in the beginning of chapter 8, God's people did react to Samuel's bad plan. Samuel's plan was for his sons to just rule and take over as judges, and they were evil men. And it was right for God's people to say, no. It was right for them to say that. But they not only said no, they said no, and then they overreacted and said, we will take control of this now. Give us a king like all the other nations. Friends, the Bible and Jesus himself has much compassion for sufferers and for people that live in a broken world and live in a world where things don't go well and where there are threats. Jesus sees that. Jesus grieves that we live in a world like that. But that is not an excuse, friends, for us to overreact and then to take control ourselves and to disobey God because we're afraid of something going wrong. The sin of Samuel's sons, friends, meant that they were rather to cast themselves upon God, not turn to self-reliance. Friends, we do this so often when we find ourselves hurt by other people. Rather than turning to God to keep our hearts soft and help us to walk in love and forgiveness and tenderness and compassion, we suit up. We armor up. We build our defenses. We become God and we build our walls. We protect ourselves. We say, I will never make myself vulnerable again. I will never love this way again. I will not commit to this. I will not forgive that person. But friends, this is an overreaction to a legitimate pain. But it will never lead to life. And God's people here, they swing to a king and Samuel warms, warms, warns them. You, you think you're doing this because it's going to protect you. But just gonna, this king is just going to take from you. It's going to pillage you. This is going to end in tears. Friends, the fundamental question here we've seen in these two examples is, number one, turning to God, what that looks like, a whole heart, worshiping him, or turning away from him. The question, though, is if this is written for our example, how do we read this Old Testament? Is it just for our example, or is there a better hope for you and I? I want to put it to us that this is an example for us, but there is a better hope 
that you and I have to serve God with our whole hearts. And this is our final point, why you and I can live more faithfully than these Israelites. Friends, Samuel was a mostly faithful judge. He had elements of prophet, priest, and king. He led the nation back to God, but it didn't last. Uh, We mentioned in our first point, you and I have Jesus, a far better prophet, priest, and king. And the scriptures tell us Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Jesus' ministry is far better. And why? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, where God speaks to his people about them entering the land, just as they were here, God tells his people, your hearts are going astray again and again and again. And God uses very graphic language to urge them to to sort out their hearts, to, to heal their hearts. He urges them to circumcise their hearts. It's Old Testament language to say, cut away that which is wrong and give me your entire heart. Do surgery upon your heart. And God's people can't. God's people can't. Their hearts are dark. Their hearts are prone towards sin. And this is the state that every human being is born in. But God himself makes a promise that one day he will do something to change our hearts. And so in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a new heart of flesh. God makes a promise. Not, God is not just saying, look, one day I'll just be clearer with my instructions. God is saying, one day I will put my spirit inside of you and make your heart new so that it's not as prone to wonder. It will not be perfect. You will still be tempted towards sin, but you will not be enslaved to it again and again. And Jesus, friends, our better prophet, priest, and king, after preaching and doing his ministry, after being a priest and dying for our sins and after delivering us from the final enemy of death and sin by dying for our sins and rising again from the dead, Acts chapter two says that ascended to the right hand of the Father, he pours out his spirit. And as his his spirit in in, uh, Acts chapter two is poured out upon people, the Acts two says that they were cut to the heart. It was a surgery of the heart. Their hearts began to know God and they began to cry out to God. Friends, this is God's spiritual warfare. This is God creating a a memorial inside of our hearts, like an Ebenezer, uh, uh, like branding his cross inside of our hearts, saying, you now are mine, you belong to me. Other passages talk about how God will, uh, by his spirit, write his law upon our hearts, put a love inside of us for him and his ways and his word. And this work of the Spirit, friends, it transforms our hearts. God makes us to be His with renewed hearts that now love Him. So 1 John talks about how if you've come to faith in Jesus, it's not just that we're trying to follow rules. No, God's put new longings inside of us, a new desire to love Him and to serve Him. Now at our church, we talk often about how as Christians waiting for Jesus to come back, there's a sinful part of us. We're still prone to sin. We are sufferers, we still face suffering, but by God's grace, by His Spirit, we're now saints. His Spirit dwells in us, we're becoming God's children. And I know that looks like Mickey Mouse, I'm sorry, I, uh, I realized that a little bit uh, late in the slides. But sometimes we draw this image and sinner, suffer, and saint are all the same proportion. 
And it can make us think that, you know, this battle we're facing where we're sinners and saints is, it's just like, who's going to win? Friends, the Bible tells us that, yes, if you're in Jesus, if you've turned from your sins and put your faith in him, he's washed away your sins. He's given you a new heart. You still live in a broken world. There's the flesh. There's the devil, the world that tries to lure us away from following God. We are prone to sin. We still suffer in this world. But the primary part of us, the biggest part of our identity is that we are saints. So Paul can write to the Corinthians that are like indulging in all kinds of sin and say to the saints who are at Corinth. And in Corinthians, Paul will say that we, as we behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, friends, there is a day coming where Mickey's head is going to get bigger than his ears, right? And in heaven one day, there'll be no ears, there'll be no sin, we'll, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more suffering. Every tear will be wiped away. We will just be saints. And hopefully, as we get closer toward heaven, as we worship Jesus more, the saint part of us grows more and more. Our tendency to sin is reduced more and more. Friends, I'm saying this to us because this pattern in the Old Testament of sin, repenting, sin repenting, is an example that we follow at some level, but we're not enslaved to sin in the same ways. God has put a spirit inside of us. God has written his law in our hearts. God has given us Jesus. He's given us the cross to remind us of his steadfast love for us. So friends, what are you, what, how can I encourage you today if you feel your heart drifting? You're a Christian, but you feel yourself in spiritual warfare. Can I encourage you to ask, friends, for the spirit to work upon your heart in a deeper way? To help you draw nearer to God. I had to do this recently, facing a wrestle with something in my heart. I found myself struggling even to pray for what I was supposed to pray for. And I began to realize there's a real wrestle here. And so the one prayer that I could begin to pray was, Holy Spirit, won't you come and work in me? Won't you soften my heart? Won't you remind me of your love? Won't you remind me who I belong to? Won't you remind me of what Jesus has done for me? Won't you remind me who, whose I am? What my future looks like? And then help my heart to live in line with that. And friends, God answered that prayer. God answered that prayer. My heart began to soften. Began to pour out my heart to God. Friends, God's given us his spirit. God's given us his spirit. Jesus became more beautiful to me again. Became assured in his love. He gave me breakthrough. For us as, as Christians, friends, this Holy Spirit is our portion. Ephesians says that he has given us his spirit as a seal or a guarantee, a down payment. And Ephesians 3 says the spirit shares God's love in our hearts, helps us to love him. So when we sing, come thou fount, we're asking God to seal us by his spirit, for his spirit to work upon our hearts in a deeper way. Friends, those two people in my office in the last year, they are both Christians. They're suffering. There's adversity in their lives. Their flesh hijacks that suffering and 
makes them want to respond in sinful ways. But the Spirit of God is at work in them. They can forgive. They can begin to love. Their hearts have been softened by the Spirit. And now they can give their whole hearts to Jesus fully. And so can you and I. So why don't we turn to him now and ask him to do that in us. I want to give you 30 seconds or so in silence before God as your father who loves you, has given his son for you. Why don't you pray for his spirit to work upon your heart that you may give your heart to him fully. Do that now. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your work among your people now. We pray that you would soften our hearts. You would make Jesus more beautiful to us. You would be our comforter and our counselor, just as Jesus promised. One who would come alongside us, remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the Father's love. Remind us of what the Son has done for us. Father, I pray that your Spirit would stir up longings and affection in our hearts for you today. Maybe that some here have not felt for some time. Spirit, you're the one that brings us into the faith too. I pray for those here this morning who do not believe in you, who are not your children. Spirit of God, I pray you would be at work in their hearts to make their hearts alive. Fulfill your promise to them, just as you have done to us, Lord God, to take stony hearts and make them hearts of flesh. And if that's you here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to repent of your sins. That's to turn from them and then to give your heart to God. Come to God in faith this morning. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.